Well, we've been going through the life of Joseph here at East Point Church. Uh, last week, we were reminded, chapter 41, that God had brought Joseph through his time that he was in the prison and now had raised him up to be a governor, the governor over all of Egypt, because God had determined that there would be a famine in the land, and Joseph was going to administer um, the grain, the food, during that time of famine. This morning, we come to chapter 42, and we see that the famine has hit. It is full-blown. Now, I'm thinking that it's fairly safe to say this morning that none of us have actually experienced a famine in the land. There may at times feel like there have been famines in our houses. And with us in seminary and five children, at times it did seem like there was a famine in the land. Well, there was not a famine in the land. There was just a famine in our home. Beloved, I doubt if any of us have really actually experienced a famine. An ex extreme and widespread scarcity of food resulting in massive sickness and disease and the loss of life. The interesting thing is that in our day here in the 21st century, famines do not occur like they did in times past. And in fact, the frequency of such widespread famines are rare on a mass scale. And this is largely due, beloved, to the fact that our agriculture has been industrialized and there is now the mass production of food in our countries. And therefore, today, famines are not simply the result of um, the changes, the drastic shifts and changes in weather, whether it's drought or flood. But today, if we see a famine in certain parts of the world, it is not simply due to the weather. It is due in large part to political corruption. It is due in large part to financial corruption. It is due in large part to wars and greed. And therefore, whenever we do see famine in our times, the, the world around us, the world in which we live, usually moves because there is such an industrialization, uh, industrialization of food and there's such a mass production of agriculture that, that we have world relief organizations. We have Live Aid, Band-Aid, Feed the Hungry, Feed the World. And in biblical times, beloved, famines were dreaded. Famines were dreaded because they were devastating. There was no mass industrialization of agriculture. There was not 
the mass individual production of food. There were no airlifts. There were no freight trains full of food carrying food across the country. There were no cargo ships sailing the seas full of containers of corn and rice. When famine hit in biblical times, beloved, it usually came without warning. And it lasted a good while. And they were devastating with deadly effects. In fact, if you read the scriptures carefully, you will see that famine in the Bible is often associated with the judgment of God. The judgment of God against sin, against disobedience. See that in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 15, with David, he had sinned against God. And God told David that he was going to judge David by judging a nation, and what was he going to do? He was going to bring a famine upon the land. You see the promise of this judgment in Jeremiah chapter 14 and, and verse 15, when God says through the prophet that he's going to bring judgment against the sinfulness and disobedience of, of people by bringing a famine and pestilence upon the land. You see it again in Ezekiel. Chapter 5 and verse 12, whenever there is a famine, it is good, as you are studying the scriptures, to be asking yourself, what is God up to? That he would decree a famine to come upon the land. And the famine that is mentioned here in chapter 30, uh, 41 and, and chapter 42, remember, is the famine that God has brought upon Egypt. Remember when Pharaoh has the dream and Joseph comes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, God has showed you what God is about to do. God is bringing a famine upon the land. It's a reminder to us that all things, all times, are in the hands of God. And like others, the famine that we read about here that has come upon Egypt is in one sense the judgment of God. It is the judgment of God, but not so much upon Pharaoh. It is the judgment of God upon the sons of Jacob. This famine has hit Egypt. But it has not just hit Egypt, beloved. It has spread throughout all of the countryside so that all of those countries and areas that are influenced by the mighty nation that is Egypt is too going to experience this 
famine, this scarcity of food, this devastating natural disaster. So it is not Egypt only, but now it has spread to Canaan. And so now all of Canaan, too, is experiencing the loss of food and the devastating effects of not having enough to eat. And so though it starts in Egypt, the judgment of God is actually upon Canaan and the sons of Jacob. You got to know this is God's doing and God's objectives and God's agenda. It's always good to remind ourselves, beloved, that in the midst of whatever is happening, to be asking, what is God up to? What is God doing? This morning we'll see that what God is doing is judging the nation. But he's not just judging the nation. Because God doesn't, doesn't ever just judge. And more importantly than that, God is being merciful. God is being merciful. Because as usual, beloved, whether you realize it or not, the judgment of God is never without mercy. It always is, beloved. In fact, I like how the songwriter put it where he says, behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. There is always the mercy of God, even in the midst of the most terrible storm. This is what we'll see this morning. Yes, God's judgment. But even more than that, behind that judgment is the smiling face of his mercy. In fact, I would submit to you that the mercy of God is often disguised. It's often disguised. God had sent this judgment into all the land and God had prepared Egypt. Therefore, in the midst of this famine to feed the world. And having prepared Egypt to feed the world, God raised up Joseph to be the one who was going to rule over the distribution of this food. And thus, Joseph becoming the most powerful man in all the land. Jacob, over in Canaan with his sons, desperate for food, has heard and gotten the word that they need not starve because there is actually food in Egypt available. And therefore, Jacob sends his sons, tells his sons to get up from there, staring at one another and twiddling and sucking your thumbs, and get up and go and get some food for our family. Go to Egypt. And Jacob sends his sons to get grain. Now, beloved, it has been 
20 years since they last set eyes on Joseph. The arc of the universe is long, somebody said, but it bends toward justice. They went to Egypt to get food. God brought them to Egypt for judgment. And notice that in the midst of the judgment, the mercy of God is disguised. This is amazing, When they get to Egypt and they have to stand before Joseph and they have to bow down to Joseph and and ask Joseph for food. They bow down before their younger brother and Joseph, the Bible says, recognized them and remembered the dream, he remembered the word of God, how they would bow down before him. But you know what the Bible says in verse 8, 42, it says, but they don't recognize Joseph. They had come to Egypt to get grain because of the misery of the famine. But God had brought them to Egypt because they needed mercy for the misery of their sin. Judgment was coming. And they would see the judgment. But what they couldn't recognize was the mercy. There was Joseph standing before them, beloved. The mercy of God, their salvation, their redemption, and you know what the Bible says? They couldn't see it. Joseph sees who they are. And they don't recognize him. And naturally so, beloved, because Joseph was different. He was no longer the 17-year-old little brother. He was no longer a little brat brother running around speaking of his dreams, wearing this ugly coat that his daddy had given him, smelling like sheep. He was now the crown prince of Egypt. Joseph was different, but the brothers were different too. They were no longer the bragging, the boasting, the bullying big brothers. But now they were the poor, hungry, begging, humbled big brothers. I think it was our Lord who said that the first shall be last. 
and the last shall be first. And those who exalt themselves shall be humbled. And those who humble themselves shall be exalted. And so it is, beloved. The tables have now turned. And now they have come to Joseph begging bread because of the famine. And you know, when they come to Joseph, that day should have been a day of judgment. That day should have been a day of judgment. As Joseph identifies them, as Joseph knows who they are, that day should have been the day of their judgment. But instead of being a day of judgment, it becomes a day of mercy. A day of mercy. Mercy is disguised as a famine. You ever think about that, beloved? How yesterday should have been a day of judgment. For the multitudes of your sin. Have you considered this morning? that today should be a day of judgment because of the plethora of your sin. And instead of yesterday being a day of judgment, yesterday was a day of mercy. Instead of today being a day of judgment, today is a day of mercy. Oh, beloved, I know you don't always, we don't always see it that way because mercy is disguised. Because mercy is disguised. Joseph could have revealed himself to his brothers at that very moment, but God would not have it so. Why? Because sometimes, beloved, God hides his face so that his people would recognize their ultimate need of him. So he hides his face. In fact, that's what the Bible says. The Bible says the judgment, in this sense, is the hiding of God's face. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 20. God said, I will hide my face from them. I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be. For they are a perverse generation, sons in whom there is no faithfulness. He hides his face. In Micah chapter 3 and verse 4. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer. Instead, he will hide his face from them. At that time, because they have practiced evil deeds. Sometimes God hides his face. And there comes the judgment. But you need to be realizing, you need to be looking and seeing that even in a frowning providence, the face that is hiding 
is a merciful one. And sometimes mercy is disguised. A young man who is shot and arrested on the streets for selling drugs and gang banging. And yet the bullet did not kill him. And instead, the bullet that would have killed him actually saved him. Because it got him off the streets. And got him into the grace and the mercy of God. And today he is a pastor preaching the mercy of God. Why? Because sometimes mercy comes disguised. A young lady who is promiscuous and rebellious becomes pregnant. Convinced by others not to abort the baby because understanding that God does not make mistakes. And she has the child and the child becomes a sobering reminder to her of her need to get her life together and suddenly she decides because she desires not to be the mother that she had. She decides that she's going to be the mother that she didn't have and so she goes to school, she gets her degrees and she decides to raise her daughter in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Because sometimes mercy is disguised. Oh, beloved, no matter how much you sin, it is never only about the judgment of God. God's mercy may be disguised, but it is still mercy. You wait on it. You watch for it. For if God says in 2 Chronicles chapter 30 and verse 9, if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion and their captors Return to this land, for the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. Yes, sometimes mercy is disguised, beloved. And just because it's disguised does not mean it's not mercy. It is never only judgment behind that frowning providence is God's merciful, smiling face. And the reason why, beloved, that it is never only judgment is because mercy is always required. You and I stand in the need of God's mercy every moment of every day. Now listen to me, beloved. The situation here was dreadful and it was dire. When Joseph tells these boys that he has recognized them as spies who have come to spy out the land, who have come to steal 
the grain. He is accusing him of treason. The penalty for is death. They insist that they are not. They insist that they are honest men. They insist that they are not spies. And Joseph insists, no, you are spies. You have come to steal our grain. You have come to spy out our food. The Bible says that he locks them up. They are confused and they are wondering what is going to happen to them. But as they are confused, beloved, as to what Joseph is doing, what they are not confused about is the nature of their sin. Now this is very important, beloved. For they reminded each other that the guilt of Joseph's sin was still upon them. This is so interesting because after 20 years, they still hadn't forgotten. And that's what judgment does. Judgment sobers you up. If you've ever had to go to court, if you ever knew that the day was coming that you were going to have to stand before the judge, what did you do in all those days preceding? You sobered up. You went over your notes. You checked the record. You made sure that you had all your T's crossed and all your I's dotted. That's what judgment does. Makes you examine all of your facts. So that when you stand there, you want all your ducks to be in a row. Joseph had been out of this sight for almost over 20 years. But isn't it interesting? That the guilt of their sin could not be removed from their hands. And so Joseph sent his brothers in the jail, gave them three days to ponder the situation. That's just not fair. Three days to ponder what's going to happen the next time that door opens. Three days to ponder. And beloved, when crooks are together pondering their situation, the thing that is talked about are the crimes that they have committed. And so here they are. Pondering their condition, contemplating their future. But before they can contemplate the future, they know that they're going to have to reconcile with the past. David said in Psalm 51, verse 3, For I know my sin, I know my transgression. 
and my sin is ever before me. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Isn't that what the brothers say to one another? I don't know why we're here. But I know what we've done. And Reuben said, didn't I tell you not to sin against Joseph? But you wouldn't listen. And now we have to answer for his blood. Beloved, what does one thing have to do with the other? What does the blood of Joseph have to do with the famine in the land? What does the sin of Joseph have to do with the fact that they are accused of being spies? On the surface, it seems like nothing. On the surface, it seems like these two desperate things have nothing to do with one another. But in the grand cosmic realities of God, beloved, there is a reckoning for sin. And you may not be guilty of the thing that I accuse you of. But you are guilty of the things that God accuses you of. And for those sins, beloved, there must be a reckoning. They are not guilty of spying, no. But there are other sins for which they must give a reckoning. Why? Because, beloved, there is always a reckoning. There is no sin that goes unnoticed. None. None. In this sense, the brothers are right. We may not be guilty of spying, but if we perish today, it is not because we are, not, we are without guilt. Now the eyes of the Lord, the Proverbs says in Proverbs 15, the eyes of the Lord are in every place. He sees the evil and the good. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, nothing in all creation is, is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid before the eyes of him to whom we all must give an account. For the Lord is slow to anger, it says in Nahum chapter 1 and verse 3, and great in power, and the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. There must be a reckoning. Now, beloved, because this is true, there is not a person in here this morning who doesn't stand in the need of the mercy of God. 
Now you listen to me this morning. Get off your cell phones for a second. And listen. For whatever reason you have come here this morning. And whatever you believe or perceive your needs to be. And they are various. I understand them. We all come with different needs. And various objectives for coming to church. I understand that. We are not all here walking in these doors thinking the same thing. We have all come here with our own different perceived needs and notions and ideas. Some of us have come hoping that we would be healed in some type of relation no matter. Others have come hoping that we would be able to leave as soon as possible. Others of us have come only because we didn't want anybody to ask us this week why we didn't come. I understand that. We all come for different wants and desires and needs and hopes and dreams and conversations and concerns. But I want to be clear this morning. If you are here, you need the mercy of God. And if you have come for any other reason, let's get it straight right now. There is going to be a reckoning. Every one of us this morning is going to stand before the judgment seat of God and have to give a reckoning for your sin. And you will never be more sober. And at that moment, every sin must be accounted for. Every idle word, every deviant thought, every hateful, spiteful, angry, lustful, greedy, selfish action. Word or deed is going to have to be paid for. There's going to be a reckoning. And I got bad news. There is only one way. You can't do it by telling God that you came to church faithfully. You're not going to do it by telling him that you kept the Sabbath faithfully. You're not going to do it because you said that you were kind to your neighbor. You're not going to do it because you could tell God that you obeyed your parents. You're not going to do it just because you could tell God that you gave faithfully every Sunday. You're not going to do it because you could tell God that you never called in sick when you weren't sick. The bad news is there is only one way. 
And that is that you must have trusted in Jesus Christ and let his blood speak for you. On that day of reckoning, you must be able to plead the blood of Christ. I got bad news. There is only one way. But I got good news. There is a way. There is a way, beloved. It is in the mercy of God that is found in the face of Jesus Christ. God is being merciful this morning. Why? Because you and I are sinners and he has provided a savior. Joseph and his brothers went to Egypt thinking they needed food. No, they needed a savior. You have come here this morning thinking you need all types of things. No, beloved. You need a Savior. You need the mercy of God this morning. And here is the good news, beloved. No matter how miserable it has been, how difficult you think the judgment of God is upon you even now, this morning there is mercy. This morning, there is grace. Oh, beloved, I like what Reuben did. Reuben rehearsed the brother's sins for them. Why don't you try doing that this morning? It won't take long. The sin you did this past week, the sins you did yesterday, the sins you did this morning, not your friends, not your enemies, not your brothers or your sisters, not the presidents, not even the pastors, but your own. And you know what you'll find? And not only is mercy so necessary, mercy is undeserved. It's amazing. You know what the Bible says? When Joseph heard the travail of his brothers, when he heard the travail of their souls and the torment over their sin as they are languishing in that jail, the Bible says he turned from them and he wept. He wept. Here is the display of a heart that is full of the compassion and the undeserved mercy of God. Joseph is moved to tears. He is moved to tears. And why should he be? Would you be? 20 years. 20 years abandoned. 
20 years mistreated, 20 years neglected, 20 years falsely accused, 20 years falsely imprisoned, 20 years forsaken by his brothers and forgotten by his family. 20 years! And yet, he is not angry. He is not bitter. But instead, the Bible says, he weeps. He weeps with compassion and love for those who transgressed against him. Beloved, there is no greater picture of our Savior this morning. The Bible says our Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. He is full of compassion and he is ready to forgive. He stands on ready. And he is weeping a sign of his willingness to be compassionate. Jesus, the Bible says, wept over Jerusalem. He wept over Jerusalem for the same reason that he weeps over you and me, beloved. Because he loved us more than we could ever love our sin. And yet we won't let it go. And he weeps. He weeps because he stands with mercy right in front of you. And you won't see it. He weeps because you won't let pride and anger go. He weeps because you won't let your stubbornness and your selfishness go. He weeps because he doesn't want to judge you for your sins. He wants to embrace you in his grace. He weeps because mercy is so great and undeserved. And yet you remain in your sin. There is no reason this morning, if you are here, that you don't receive the forgiveness and the mercy of God. Except you refuse to acknowledge this weeping Savior. Who with all rights, should be judging you this moment for the sins and the transgressions you have committed. And yet, he offers you mercy. He offers you grace. He offers you forgiveness. Such mercy, beloved, is absolutely undeserved. And yet that is the nature of mercy. It comes disguised. It's undeserved. Because it is really inexplicable. 
Now, we speak a lot about the mercy of God and, and where we should and describe the mercy of God using a lot of words. But the one that I find myself coming back to again and again and again is this word, inexplicable. I mean, the mercy of God is just beyond explanation. It is beyond reasonableness. It is beyond comprehension. I mean, when you step back and you identify and you look and you understand and you actually see and experience the mercy of God, the only thing you can say is, who does that? Really? Who does that? Joseph decides that he's not going to keep all his brothers. He's going to send his brothers back. He's going to send his brothers back to his father so that they can see and he could see if they have really repented of their sin. And when they were on their way back, beloved, the Bible says that they found in their sacks not only the grain they had been set to buy, but also the money with which they thought they had bought it. And notice the question they asked. With fear and trembling, they ask one another in verse 28, what is this that God has done to us? What is God doing to us? What is God doing? This is always the question, isn't it? At least it should be the question. That should always be the question. Even in the midst of all of their lies, even in the midst of all of their deceit and their conspiracy and the torture and the treachery and the pain, they have cause to pause and acknowledge that God is still with them. What is he doing? Beloved, it reminds me that they still have hope. Now they understand that their lives in the hand of a good and a gracious God. Or instead of judgment, they received mercy. And they wonder. Who does that? What is God doing? What a great question. What a great question to ask. I mean, this is the question that is going to be asked, and, the, and, and we're going to seek the answers from the scriptures in the weeks coming as we continue in the study of the life of, of Joseph. But what a pertinent question to ask every day. What a pertinent question to ask this morning. 
It's a question, beloved, that I find myself often asking. What are you up to, God? I don't go down to a sickbed, beloved. Unless I ask God, God, why am I here? Why have you afflicted me? What do you want me to know? What do you want me to see? What should I be examining in my life that I might grow closer to you? Why have you afflicted me, Lord? What are you doing, God? Whenever I find myself frustrated and at the ends of my means, I ask God, what are you doing, Lord? What are you doing, Lord? What an important and powerful question to be asking that the people of God need to be seeking answers for all of the God, what are you doing? Hey, you, Lord, raised up President Trump to the White House and placed him in the highest office in the land. And rather than swear and cuss, let me ask the question, Lord, what are you doing? God, what are you up to? Beloved, rather than getting angry with God because you have lost a job or a loved one or a position, relationship, ask God, God, what are you doing? God, what are you up to? God, what would you have me I don't have all the answers to that question, beloved. There are some things I know that he is always doing. What are you doing, God? Well, he is being gracious. That's what he's doing. Even on my sickbed, he is being gracious. Even in the loss of many things, he is being gracious. Joseph's brothers should have been left to rot in that jail. And yet not only will they see their father again, but they have grain and money to spare. What are you doing, God? I don't know what God is doing, all that he is doing, but I do know that he is being gracious. He has been gracious to you because, as Psalm 103 and verse 10 reminds us, he has not treated us as our sins deserve. If he afflicts me and has me on a thousand days of bed sickness, beloved, he still hasn't treated me as my sins deserve. What is God doing? He is being gracious to you. I don't care how bad you think it is, beloved. If you 
have the grace and the mercy of God unto the forgiveness of your sins in Jesus Christ. He has not treated you as your sins deserve. If you are alive today and not experiencing the pains of an eternal damnation away from Christ, then God has not treated you as your sins deserve. What are you doing, God? First thing he's doing is just being gracious. Like I said, I don't have all the answers, but I know not only is he being gracious, but he is being good. You may not understand it. Joseph's brothers didn't understand all that was going on. But one thing that we can be confident in, beloved, is no matter what the situation or the circumstances in this world, God is working those out for good. It doesn't always feel good. It doesn't always taste good. It doesn't always, from my perspective, look good. But I do know that whenever I ask the question, God, what are you up to? The answer resounds, I am being good. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Because you do know, beloved, no matter what the story says today, God's people never have bad endings. Did you hear what I said? God's people never have bad endings. This is the point of the resurrection of Christ. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? They have all been swallowed up with Christ. And therefore, if Christ has been raised, then you and I who are in him will be raised also. And therefore, God's people never have bad endings. What are you up to, God? He's being gracious. He's being good. Whenever I ask the question, you know the answer that always comes back. Tony, I'm being God. <laughs> I am being God. That's what he's up to. He is God. He is sovereign. He is in control of all things. He is God. This, beloved, is a great reminder to us this morning. Whatever the question is in your life, let God be true. Whatever the question, let God be in control. Whatever the question, let God be God. You know you'll find? Find that he's indescribable. And he's uncontainable. For he sets the stars in the heavens. And he knows them by name. You'll find that he is an amazing God. 
you'll, you'll find that he's unchangeable and incomparable. And he sees the depths of your heart. And he loves you the same. And you'll say, oh, he is an amazing God. An amazing God. Let God 